Good morning, Grace. If you're visiting this morning, I'm Kenny, one of the elders here at Grace. It's my privilege, responsibility to take us to the Word here this morning. That line is great. Now we freely walk into the arms of Christ our Lord. That's a picture of us coming to the Word here, hearing from His Word, submitting ourselves to it. Um, as we were singing this morning, actually, not right, not right now, but this morning as the band was rehearsing and I was sitting in here listening to some of these songs that I... I realized we were going to sing this morning. The phrase that struck me was amazed confidence is something that we should feel when we sing songs like this. Um, That like lines like the prince of life without a stain was traded for the sinner. Amazed because we should never grow um, so accustomed to that, familiar with that, that we just think, yeah, of course, you know, of course he did. Um, We we have this sense of, "I, I just can't believe it. But at the same time, confidence and assurance, a settled uh, assurance that becomes like the base of operations for our thinking and the way we live out the day-to-day, that we live in light of this this confidence that this is true. Even though it seems too good to be true, it is. So that's what we're here to do here this morning. Ask the Lord to help us grow in our amazed confidence with him. Let me pray and ask him to do that. Uh, Lord, the grace that we just sang about is grace that we can't explain. Um, it's, it's greater than we could hope, and yet it's true. And we thank you for all now that comes to us that we can declare is ours because, Jesus, you, the Prince of Life, traded your life for us sinners, Lord. And you've made us, everything that we've just sung about here this morning, this incredible identity is your beloved people, uh, your temple. So help us uh, understand this identity more clearly this morning and live it out to your glory in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a bit. But before we get there, I wanted to ask, remember when flash mobs were a thing? Like briefly as sort of an internet uh, thing is groups of performers, sometimes musical theater actors and singers or musicians would plan to show up somewhere unannounced, a mall courtyard or a, like food court or a park or something, and, and w- starting with a few people and it would grow into this huge performance and all these people would be drawn. Betsy, my wife, reminded me this last week. We were thinking about flash mobs and the best one I think we've ever seen, she reminded me of, maybe you've seen it, it was probably 10 years or so ago. It's got millions of hits, but it was in some little village square in the UK and it starts with this man and a big old double bass standing in this, you know, cobblestone courtyard somewhere in the UK, and he starts playing on his bass, the bass line of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And a few people are kind of walking by and and looking like, what's what's going on? And, And then you see this woman sneak out from an alley with a cello, and she sits down next to him, and she just adds the cello part. You keep seeing people are like, what's, what's going on here? And then this bassoon player comes out of a storefront and joins them, and it's the three of them, and it just keeps going on like this. Suddenly a, a string section comes around the corner, and a guy pushing two timpanis rolls him out, and it just keeps growing, 
and growing, and then all of a sudden brass players, and then you got this full orchestra, and then they, they come around to another stanza, and all these people start singing, and you realize, oh, the choir's here as well, and as this is happening, the crowd around gets bigger and bigger, and kids are dancing around, and people's eyes are just can't believe. I mean, this is like this world. They realize that this isn't just any group of people. This, their identity, they're a world-class orchestra and choir, and they have the privilege of seeing this amazing um, song performed for them. It's just stunning. And you even see people in the crowd who aren't part of the choir singing along because they know the song. Kind of like God's plan for the church. Christians are called, we are called to gather as his church to worship, to have this sort of an influence in the world. I, I was thinking, what if we started doing church like that? That'd be pretty cool. Just a few of us show up over at La Mata Regional Park, you know, and then a few more add and a few more add, and pretty soon all of us are there singing and people go, and then we pick a new place next week. That would be, that'd be a pretty, someone's probably come up with that idea. But that is this cool picture of the church gathered to worship, but also in a way that, that, that draws the attention of the watching world to see and consider the glory of God. And gathering isn't an option. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 make it clear that this meeting together that God has ordained, that his church regularly, weekly, gets out of bed, joins one another at a particular location to meet is something that we should not neglect. It's a habit that we can uh, get into, but, but it warns us, don't neglect the meeting together. This is the habit of son. It's intentional, um, and it's, it's a command, and it's intended to display something about our identity and our calling as God's people. Um, our gathering uh, displays that Jesus didn't just save us from something. He didn't just redeem us out of sin and guilt and death and hell, but he, save, he saves us and he's saving us into something to be a new people, a new creation, to walk in newness of life toward an eternal future with him. When you turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ uh, in repentance and faith, uh, God changed your identity and my identity. You went from being a worshiper of yourself I went from being a worshiper of myself to becoming a worshiper of God. You were changed from being a spiritual orphan to be a beloved adopted child, an heir of God, co-heir with Christ. Your identity changed from being a follower of the course of this world, which is the course of Satan, Ephesians 2 says, to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord. Your identity changed from being terminally ill, spiritually speaking, sick to death with sin. Now, having been administered the cure and you're being healed by the power of the Spirit until one day that healing is perfected when Jesus returns. Your identity changed from being an adversary of God, working against him with a clenched fist to becoming an ally with God, fighting alongside him in an army of mercy to redeem lost people out of darkness. And each of these new identities comes with calling. Each of these new identities is to be lived out in visible ways by us together as his church. You know, Jesus didn't just die to make people for his possession, but a people 
That A makes all the difference, not just individual living stones, but A people, a priesthood, not just priests. That's what we're here to think about this morning. Each of these identities comes with a calling, worship, love, learning, healing, good warfare, as Paul says to Timothy. Be a good soldier and and wage the good warfare, he says. So that's what we're going to do over five Sundays. We're going to think about each of these identities in terms of buildings and then what happens in each of those buildings. So Daniel Kemmerlinga, who is amazingly talented and artistic, she designed this for us. And you see there's a little street here with five buildings, temple and a home and a school and a hospital and barracks. Or Joseph Lake pointed out to me, we should have said base because barracks, he said, is where sleeping and hijinks happens, not where the real training happens. But anyway, you get the point. But each of these uh, buildings reminds us of an of, of a aspect of our identity that we are to live out as God's church. Um, and we've lined them up on a street to sort of remind us that these are all true simultaneously. They're all interconnected, in fact. And we've put temple first because I think temple is the overarching identity of who we are as God's people, that each of those other buildings and identities is, is, is working out an aspect of, as we're going to see here in a little bit. Each of these um, identities, the ways that we live them out, um, is how we express our templeness. We do it as we are the family of God and we are disciples of Christ and we are the sick who are being healed together by Christ and we're his soldiers fighting for his kingdom. The idea of temple in the Bible is so big that you can actually tell the entire story of God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation in terms of temple. I came across this video this last week. The Bible Project puts out some amazing things. And I came across this four-minute video that tells the story of Genesis to Revelation in terms of temple. And I thought, I couldn't do it any better than that. I just want to show it to you. So we're going to take four minutes here as a foundation of thinking of ourselves as the temple of God here this morning to orient ourselves in God's story. Check this out. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. 
And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. amazing? What an incredible story. And we're a part of this. We're in that story. What I love about that video is it helps orient us sort of like a mall map with the dot you are here. We think about in that story where we are is right between Jesus' first and second coming. At Jesus' first coming, like the video said, Jesus became God's true temple, the meeting place of holy God and sinful man where we are united under his rule and rest. When Jesus died on the cross and it says the veil of the curtain in the temple that, that uh, 
that shielded the people from the glory behind it in that most holy place when it was torn from top to bottom, God was signifying that that temple had just been put out of business. It was no longer required and that Jesus had in his life and death and resurrection fulfilled everything that all the things in the temple were all along shadows and copies of. All the priests and the sacrifices and the offerings, Jesus fulfilled all that. He became the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world once for all. He becomes our great high priest who ushers us into the very presence of God through the veil. And he gave himself for us to to, to bring us into that with him. So he's the true temple and we, as we're united with him together by faith through his spirit, we become part of that temple. And the, the end picture is that beautiful picture of all of creation being released from its groaning and bondage to decay and the curse that God subjected it to when Adam and Eve sinned, um, being restored and resurrected and made perfect again so that we're, we're with him in a new heavens and new earth. And it says in Revelation that no need of sun or moon because the glory of the Lord and the lamb who was slain is the light. Uh, that, 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 that fills it all. And in between that, here we are right now, right now on earth as we're waiting for that day, where is God displaying his presence, his rule and rest and reign? It's not in a physical building. It's not on one particular mountain or in one particular structure. It's in us, his people, which is amazing. The place on earth where, where you can look and see God's presence is in his people, in us. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, which we've uh, read this morning and sung through all those hymns. I want us to read it one more time. It's going to help us uh, let this truth sink in that we are now the living temple in which God dwells. Let's read it. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word for us this morning. Two main points I want us to to draw from this as we think about this. Uh, The first is that we gather and scatter as God's people, uh, as his temple. We gather and scatter uh, as the temple of God. And the second point is just going to add on the purpose. We gather and scatter as the temple of God to worship him. So first, we we gather and scatter as the people of God. Um, First point, living stones are meant to gather. We need to see that here. 
We're living stones, but we're meant to gather. Notice that the living stones that Peter describes are building materials. They're not just decorative rocks. They're intended to be part of something greater than themselves. So on one hand, yes, every living stone is individually a temple of God. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells? But we're not merely individual temples, but living stones that are meant to be part of a spiritual house. We're being built up, verse 5, as a spiritual house. And I think if you would have... said to Peter, uh, no, I I think that I can just be a living stone and not be meaningfully connected in any visible uh, way to a local church, he just, he would have just, it would have been inconceivable. The two go together. Listen to this, sometimes Spurgeon gets a little, Charles Spurgeon preaching gets a little uh, testy. He says here about this passage, he says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, well, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. And I say, are you quite clear about that? Can you be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What's the brick made for? Well, it's made to build a house. It's of no use for the brick to tell you it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. (laughs) He says, so you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. I can't remember. Did I put this picture in here? Let me see here. Oh, no, I didn't. I was going to show you. I made me think of Fred Sanders Rock. Does anyone know about Fred Sanders Rock? For his birthday just this last year, Susan, is that right? His birthday wish was he wanted a really big rock for their front yard. Like not, not big, but like really big. And they got it. I'm gonna get the picture for second service. Somehow I forgot to put it in there. It's huge. They had to offload it with a crane in your front yard. And it's a stunning rock. It's, it's a very handsome rock. People probably stop, slow down, and check it out as they're driving by. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's a thing of beauty. But that's not the way in which we are intended to be stones, uh, living stones created by God, just sitting in a front yard being marveled at all by itself. We're created as building materials. Living stones are part of something bigger. Living stones that never gather are failing to live out their templeness. And we're going to see over the next few weeks our templeness just can't be lived out in isolation. We can't be the household of God, the family of God, if we don't gather and love one another. We can't be disciples together with Christ if we're not learning together at his feet and, and, and on and on as we're going to see. But I want us to think in the same way that living stones um, are failing to live out their templeness if they never gather together, uh, they also fail to live out their templeness if we only gather together. So living stones are meant to scatter as well. It's implicit. The fact that we're to gather regularly implies that then we go out and we do it again next week. And the scattering is part of being the temple of God as much as the gathering is. It's a rhythm of grace This is a great book by Mike Cosper. How the church's worship tells the story of the gospel. How what we do in here every week, week in and week out, keeps retelling and visually displaying uh, the, the story of the gospel. But he uses this phrase, rhythms of grace, and he's talking about this pattern of gathering and scattering through which we display our templeness in the world. 
We gather together and then we scatter. I think we live out this rhythm of grace in two ways as God's church. First, we live out this pattern in our weekly worship that we're doing right now here on Sunday. We see this pattern in the early church. If you want to look at Acts chapter 2 for a minute, 42 through 47. We see this pattern even in the the first church that gets established in Jerusalem. Well, what did they begin to do together? Well, they gathered. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's to being together to mutually encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. And to the breaking of bread and the prayers, probably there, meaning the Lord's Supper and praying together in one place, united in one mission and spirit. But we also see that they scattered then. It says day by day they continued to attend the temple. Think about that for a minute. They, they knew that now, as the apostles were teaching them, that that temple was out of business. That Jesus had become the true temple, that they were now folded in a part of the temple. Why do they keep day by day going back to the temple? Well, no doubt they were speaking of Jesus, the true temple, and persuading others because we see day by day the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. So we see this weekly worship of gathering together to worship as God's people and then scattering out to live lives of worship outside of the walls of wherever they were gathered. And each one feeds the other. As we scatter out these doors every week to engage and evangelize our world, to to, to meet and know people who don't know Jesus and tell them the good news about Jesus, we're gathering in new worshipers with God's help. And then we gather back together as God's worshipers to do what he saved us to do, to worship around the throne of Jesus together. And then we do it all over again. We're going to come back to the worship part in a minute, but, but I want us to see that it's a pattern for our weekly worship. But if we think about it, it's also God's pattern for fulfilling the Great Commission as the church is gathering and scattering, gathering and scattering. We see this happen in Acts 2. That early church in Jerusalem is being built up thousands, thousands, and we get to Stephen gets martyred and persecution breaks out against the church. And it says through persecution, God scattered the church. The apostles stayed, but most of the others scattered into Judea and Samaria. And it says as they did, they boldly kept preaching about Jesus. And people began trusting in Jesus outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And as they did, what happened? They gathered together and they planted churches, local churches that began this pattern of weekly worship through gathering and scattering, gathering and scattering. And as more churches begin to be planted, we see examples of like Acts 13, the church in Antioch, what are they doing? They're gathered together in prayer and fasting. They're with one another in worship. And the Lord says, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul, I have work for them, and scatters them out from their, their, their midst to go outside to call new worshipers to be part of God's temple. And what happens whenever, whenever that happens? They gather them together in local churches and they plant them as new outposts of God's temple. And it's this picture like the video beautifully displayed of coming out from the, emanating out from the cross, this expanding borders and boundaries of God's temple to the ends of the earth. John Piper, the first sentence in his famous book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, starts it by saying missions exists because worship doesn't. We scatter in missions because there's still places and people in this world that aren't worshiping the King Jesus yet. But everywhere that missions goes, it's with the goal of establishing gathered churches that regularly worship together. It's a beautiful pattern that we're a part of. 
I was thinking even this morning as we prayed with our elders of all of our grace partners that are in some pretty remote um, edge-of-the-earth places working for years and they still haven't seen one worshiper yet, but that's what we're praying for. And as soon as they begin seeing worshipers, their goal is to gather them together as the, the temple of God in a location like nomads in Chad. Missions exist because God's temple is still growing and expanding. So that's point number one. We gather and scatter as the temple of God. But point number two is we gather and scatter to do all five of these things. But this morning, I just want us to think we gather and scatter to worship. So we see here in 1 Peter 2. As Peter describes worship here, how God's people worship him, he describes it as beginning with enjoying and delighting in the excellencies of the one who saved us and delighting and enjoying in the excellency of belonging to him, of being a people for his possession. And then the worship is that enjoyment being expressed in word and in work, proclaiming it, we see here, but also uh, in, in, in work, in living out our identities. I saw Sarah Cabrera this morning has a T-shirt on that says, uh, oh, I wrote it down here. Where did I write it? Oh, live in light of redemption. That's it. <laughs> live in light of redemption. In your enjoyment and delight at being made God's people out of his mercy, live that out in work. So let's think about each one of these. First proclaim, verse nine. Peter says, you're a people for his own possession with a purpose so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, we, we, we do that. We proclaim with word his excellencies gathered and scattered. We do it every week here as the temple of God as we gather around Jesus, the true temple, and we remember the confidence we have in him to approach and draw near to God because of his atoning work at the cross. And we do it all, in all these simple ways. We do it through reading God's word and we do it through preaching God's word. We do it through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in our hearts with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. We proclaim it through the Lord's Supper and baptism, every time we celebrate it, reminding us and helping us delight in our templeness. And we do it on Sunday in remembrance of the day that Jesus, risen, walked out of a tomb because death had no claim on him, signifying that what he did on the cross worked and it can work for us. And because he conquered death, we can conquer death in him. And verse 10 here, look at it. It gives us our liturgy for every Sunday. We don't have to say these exact words like this every Sunday, but this is our liturgy. Every time we gather to proclaim his excellency, once we weren't a people, now we're God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we've received mercy. In one way or another, that's what we say to one another every week. We remember who we were. I used to be a worshiper of self. I used to be a spiritual orphan. I used to be a follower of the course of this world. I used to be terminally sick with sin, waiting for the impending judgment of the holy God, of the universe. I was an adversary of him, but I'm not anymore. He was rich in mercy and he made me alive together with him and now I'm a worshiper of him and I'm a child of him and I'm a follower of Christ and I'm healed and being healed. 
I'm his ally to extend his rule out to the ends of the earth. And every time we declare that here in this room together, it also should lead us to confession of our sin. Because every time we declare who we once were and who we now are, we should realize there's still a huge gap between who we are, that God declares we are, and how we still live. And we're reminded, like 1 John 3 says, that what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him, looks forward to that day, will be purifying themselves as he is pure. And that confession is always with confident assurance of our pardon. Because we remember and recount what Jesus did to become the true temple for us. Because he was rejected, we're accepted. Because he was condemned, we are pardoned. Because he lived a righteous life to the very last breath, God counts that righteous life to us as if we lived that life. And because he's now in heaven interceding for us at this very moment, he's able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. That's what we proclaim every week. And there's something special that happens when we proclaim it here together. Let me read you one little bit from Rhythms of Grace here by Mike Cosper. He says, when this temple gathers to do what we just talked about, something otherworldly takes place. It's an outpost of hope in a dying world. It's a fellowship of resurrected sinners whose presence in the world is a foretaste of a greater transformation to come. This weekly gathering is unique not because it's an encounter with God. It is that, he says, although God's presence is constantly available for comfort and help to us any day of the week in any place that we go, right? He says, no, it's unique because it's an encounter with the people of God filled with the spirit of God, spurring one another along in the mission of God. It's this weekly moment where Christ in me meets with Christ in you and something bigger than all of us takes place. A one-directional live stream broadcast will never accomplish that. It can never substitute for this otherworldly thing that happens when we gather together in this place and proclaim his excellency. But we also scatter every week. This fuels that. We scatter. Peter says, you're a royal priesthood. We're called to the priestly work of ushering others toward Christ to be led through the torn veil into the presence of God by the merits of his blood. And when our hearts are full of the joy that this weekly gathering ought to be stirring up in us, it should propel us out these doors into mission. Listen, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes our mission in these sort of terms, being fueled by our gathered worship and what our gathered worship reminds us of. He says the love of Christ, the love Christ has for us and has shown us, it controls us because we've concluded this, one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, including worshipers outside there who aren't worshipers yet so that those who live might not no, uh, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's all from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry is a ministry of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Look, he says, um, 
uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, proclaiming his, his excellency as his scattered people is our ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through our mouths. So Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We scatter out these doors every week to proclaim his excellencies to the world, to expand and grow his temple. And the more we devote themselves to this weekly gathering, the more fired up we're going to be to be part of that uh, scattered worship every week. But I want us to see here too that our proclaiming God's excellency isn't just in word, but it's in work. We display his excellency in our lives. Look at verse 5. I think that's what he means when he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These spiritual sacrifices, uh, this is what Junior weeks ago was preaching on when he preached, when Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. Striving by faith, he said, which is a, a key distinction that, that Peter makes right here. It takes effort. We follow hard after Jesus. We want to pursue holiness, holy lives, and we want to put sin to death, and we want to uh, abound in good works. But notice here what makes uh, this sacri- these sacrifices acceptable in God's sight through Jesus Christ. They don't contribute to their acceptability in, G- in, in God's sight. They don't add to what Jesus has already done to make us acceptable to God, but they display that we understand that Jesus has made us acceptable to God now. More than acceptable, precious, and chosen. These sacrifices are motivated by the knowledge and the trust that any sacrifice Jesus might call me to make as I follow him will actually only be for my gain. He will never be indebted to you or me for any sacrifice he calls us to. So these are lives lived to his glory. The more we know and feel the excellencies of Christ and the excellencies of being known by and possessed and owned by Christ, being chosen and set apart as his people, as we know and feel our templeness, it's going to display itself in our lives. It should. I want us to think about this in the gathered and the scattered nature here. We gather to display his excellencies in here together, not just on Sunday when we gather, but when grace groups gather and when women's Bible study gathers and when 412 student ministry gathers on Wednesday nights. Whenever Grace EV Free, the local church, this outpost of God's temple gathers together to worship, we don't just proclaim his excellencies, but there's ways that we can uniquely display his excellency when we're together. This is where I'm going to punt to the next four weeks. This is what's lying ahead for us here. But our templeness is displayed whenever we gather to pursue holiness and fight with one another arm in arm to kill sin. As fellow patients in Jesus' hospital, we're supposed to be God's holy nation, Peter says. The holiness of the one who's now dwelling inside of us is to show itself on the outside of us making us holy people. First Peter 1, just one chapter before, he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your f- former ignorance. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a team project, growing in holiness. 
Our templeness is displayed as we love one another as family, beloved children of God, brothers and sisters now with Christ together. That's the church as home. 1 Peter 1.22, it's all here in 1 Peter in, in one way or another. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, even though we're hard to love. Love one another earnestly. As we do, uh, we will display the excellency of the one who made us as people. And where does all this templeness grow up out of? The very next verse, 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How does the living, abiding word of God do this? It's as we gather in God's school to hear the apostles' teaching and have fellowship and break bread and pray. We grow as into maturity, as mature disciples of Christ. And our templeness gets displayed as we engage in Jesus' mission. You remember Jesus says, he who doesn't gather with me scatters. We're either for him or against him. We're either joining with him in gathering in worshipers or we're standing in the way of that work. And so as we gather regularly as Jesus' army of mercy to call others out of darkness into light, we're displaying our templeness, courage and boldness that, that comes from the Spirit. I was thinking of Philippians 1. 27, 28, Paul says he wants the church to be with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It displays the excellency of the one who sends us, right? It all displays his excellence. All this spirit-wrought holiness and love and zeal and learning um, give evidence of who we are. And then we scatter out these walls to display that excellence out there, to live out lives fueled by this out there. It's what Jesus had in mind when he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And as we do that, God's gonna keep building his temple and growing it and filling it. And God's graciously made us a part of this. Isn't it a privilege? Last verse I want to read here. I, I love this verse. Ephesians 3, verse 10. Couldn't say something more um, awesome and magnificent about who the church is. I mean, we should just read this and go, really? But it says, through the church, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. <laughs> yeah, Wow. What that's saying is that of everything that's happening on earth, the thing that all of heaven and hell are on the edge of their seats, fixed on, is what God's doing in his church. In humble places like 12717 Santa Gertrudis Avenue, La Mirada, California, in this space and right here, heaven is watching God display his manifold wisdom before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They're marveling at his temple. And as we gather and scatter to worship to a, a weekly here and to expand the borders of his temple through the message of the cross, we get to be a part of this. Isn't it a privilege? I want us to take a couple minutes here to pray. Just bow into silent private prayer right here. What is the Lord wanting you to hear? How is the Lord encouraging you here this morning? In what ways is the Lord awakening your heart 
uh, to what's most important, what's lasting, what he's doing, who he's made you, um, what he wants to do through you and through us. What did you need to hear? How, how do you need to pray? Take, take just a couple minutes and pray in light of this. Ask the Lord to make us his holy temple, to use us as his holy temple, to expand his holy temple in our day until Jesus returns.